Take your Bibles, if you're not there, in Psalm 2, and I hope that you're already uh, making your way through the uh, Christmas holiday season. How many of you already have your gifts taken care of? Oh, man. How many of you tired of shopping already? All right, quite a few of us. The thing about the uh, Christmas season is that it can be a time with a number of sort of painful paradoxes. Painful paradoxes. Let me illustrate this for you or explain what I mean. So you have a family reunion only to have family drama. You understand what I mean? So some of you just had this at Thanksgiving and you're realizing just a few weeks, all these people are coming back, right? So family reunion, family drama, paradox. Here's another one. So you want to be able to be generous, so you go out shopping only to have people on Black Friday punching one another so they can be generous, right? It's kind of interesting. You have a family meal, and it's really wonderful to have everybody there around the table. You're enjoying the moment, only to realize that there's an empty seat this year, and there's just this sort of ache and longing in your heart. Maybe you're longing and wanting a particular gift, and you can't wait until you're able to get that, something you've saved up for a while, only then, like, a month later to realize that kind of wasn't all what you were hoping it would be. Or here's another one. You are really looking forward to Christmas vacation. It gets done, and you need a vacation from your vacation. You ever had that experience? It's really discouraging, isn't it? So Christmas can be a bit of a paradox, and I want you to know that it's not only true in our own culture, but it was also true in the day of Jesus when he came, that the incarnation of Jesus was filled with all kinds of paradoxes. For example, you've got a a baby that comes who's king of the world. You have the king of Jews who is celebrated by those coming from the east only to be hunted by Herod who called himself the king of the Jews. You have this glorious announcement made that the Savior, the Messiah has come and yet the announcement is made to those who were considered outcasts within their society. So what you need to know is that this season that we celebrate this time of year has all kinds of paradoxes built into it. This is a time that we commemorate the birth of the Savior. From a church calendar standpoint, it's called Advent, a time that we remember the first coming of Christ with the anticipation of the second coming of Christ. It's a time to remember. It's also a time to prepare. And if you happen to be raised in a church tradition where you followed the church calendar, Advent marks the start of the year. Well, for the next number of weeks, we're going to look at a series of psalms that are called the Royal Psalms. I'm not sure if you're familiar with this category, but within the body of the psalms, the literature of the psalms, there's various kinds of psalms. Not all psalms are the same. Those of you who've been around for maybe three, four, five years will remember we spent a lot, a lot of time talking about lament psalms. A third of the psalms are lament, psalms that are prayers of pain that lead us to trust. There's also psalms like psalms of thanksgiving, historical psalms, psalms of ascent. Those were psalms that the people of God sang as they went up to the temple, as they prepared their hearts for worship. And in the midst of all these different kinds of psalms, there's this one category called royal psalms. And they were designed to be moments where the people of God celebrated a coronation of a king, and they celebrated his rule. But with each of those royal psalms, 
Something's happening on earth that's designed to point to something otherworldly. So while at one level it's celebrating the coronation of a king, it looks to the coronation of another king, namely the Messiah. The psalm that we're going to be in today is Psalm chapter or Psalm 2 that identifies the coming Messiah, uses language that's picked up in other parts of the New Testament, and highlights this central theme. This is what this psalm is about. Here it is. God reigns as people rebel. You can summarize this entire psalm with those four words. God reigns, people rebel. It's a paradox. God is reigning and people are rebelling. And this paradox not only fits with the overall paradox of the story of Christmas, but also fits It fits with the paradox of the human race, what it means to be human. That while we're alive, the Bible says we're dead. And that our only hope is to put our trust in someone other than ourselves, namely Jesus. So today what I want to do is walk you through three particular admonitions that relate to this psalm and its message about God ruling while we rebel. It's the story of humanity. And my hope is that by looking at this psalm, you'll see the connection not only to Advent and to Christmas, but also see the connection to the work of Christ. So first, notice the psalmist here invites us to see the world, see the world through a particular lens, to to see it as it really is. Verse one of chapter two says this. Why do the nations rage? and the people's plot in vain. Now, the psalmist is asking this question, not looking for an answer, he's expressing his frustration. He looks around at the world and, and, and sees the, the setup of this king, this Davidic king, and he sees all the nations under, at this point in time, the rule of Israel, who are resisting the rightful rule of this Davidic monarch, and he wonders out loud, why do these nations rage and why do the people's plot in vain? We don't know exactly what prompted the writing of Psalm 2. Some Old Testament scholars suggest it was at the anointing of David when he was announced as king. We do know that behind this psalm is what's called the Davidic covenant, which is a promise that God made to David that not only would he rule, but that from his line would come a succession of kings that would rule over Israel, and eventually there would come one who would rule permanently. And that became a precursor for the rule and reign of Christ. Psalm 2 captures this straight line between the rule of David and the role of God's sovereignty. Verse 1 wonders out loud, why do the nations rage? The word rage means to be restless and in commotion. It means that one is constantly testing the boundaries. The text says, why do the peoples plot in vain? Which means that there's an intentionality and a scheming that's related to the rebellion. And what happens here is the psalmist gasps at the constant, never-ending, churning sinfulness of mankind where we constantly, unendingly, and destructively rebel against the rule of God. We are relentless in our brokenness. I mean, when was the last time that you were watching the news only to turn it off and just like, I can't watch this anymore. This is so discouraging and disheartening. 
one thing after another that, 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 that comes to our attention. And our world has always been broken, but with new media and social media and the fact that we all have phones and can record stuff, we, we get a picture of the scale of what is happening around us. And there's a sense where the nations are raging. There's this brokenness, this unending destruction. But the problem isn't just out there. The problem also is inside. You may have asked the question, where does this conflict come from? Maybe there's a particular family member that when they come over, they can hardly say anything, and you're just inside going, mm, 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 And you're sitting over there going, mm, what I'd like to say right? And you just wonder, where does that come from? person walks in the room and immediately there's just something in your soul. It's just like, all right, here we go. The problem, the problem isn't just that the nation's rage, it's that people's rage. Inside is this, this churning issue. Verse 2, the kings of the earth set themselves, the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed. Now here we see back in the context that when God established David as the rightful ruler of Israel, by placing him in that position, he's described as the Lord's anointed. This word anointed is an important word. You may be familiar with the word Messiah. Well, Messiah is just a transliteration of this Hebrew word in the same way that in the New Testament the word for anointed one or chosen one is Christ so now Messiah here in the Old Testament are these two terms that become markers for this one whom God has chosen chosen to rule the anointing essentially was the moment when prophet anointed literally put oil over the head of the ruler, and in so doing, it was a marker that he was enthroned because of a divinely given covenant. So therefore, the psalmist connects resisting the anointed one and resisting the Lord. Verse three, he even puts words in their mouth. He says, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Trying to get away from the rule of this king. And then in verse four, we see he who sits in the heavens laughs. This is referring to God. And the Lord holds them in derision. This means that in comparison to God, the rage of the nations is laughable in terms of its silly exercise of its power. It's as though God sits in heaven and says, you think your kingdom is powerful? You think your bombs are significant? You think your authority is limitless? The sovereign God who speaks in the universe is created, looks at our puny little nations and views them as laughable. Like a little child trying to exercise his or her rights as a parent looks and just sees a temper tantrum and smiles and says, how ridiculous is this? I was trying to think of a an image, an analogy, or an illustration to try and make this clear. I, I thought of moments when I was a small child, maybe 10 years old or so, and my sister, who was three, four years younger than me, when she would get mad at me and she'd come after me. Even back then, my arms were long, and so I could put my arm out 
and, and hold her head as she's coming at me like this, and I could just kind of go, <laughs> right? It's not that God sits in heaven and has that sort of chipper attitude, but it is the sense that God's arm is much longer than the arm of any nation. His power is much greater than the strength of any ruler. His might is so much more significant than anything that we could imagine in regards to human and earthly authority. And so while these nations scheme and plot against God's plan, they have no idea who they're dealing with. They may rage and rebel, but God sees them for what they really are. Do you know that's true not only at a personal level? It's true not only at a national level, rather, but also at a personal level. That God not only sees nations and rulers and kings for what they really are, but he sees you, he sees me for what we really are. The Bible asks us, what do we think about that? Why do the nations rage and why do the peoples plot in vain? Verse 4 here captures the ironic contrast between earthly rebellion and God's control. That while the world sort of churns in its rebellion, the psalmist would want us to know that there's an overarching sovereign plan. Interestingly enough, in Acts chapter 4, when the church faced its first persecution, when the believers gathered to pray, they actually quoted Psalm 2 in their prayer. They saw the world through the lens of God's sovereignty. They connected the opposition of religious leaders to their movement in light of Psalm 2. So can I just encourage you over the next number of weeks to, to see life through this lens? I'm encouraging you to kind of see the world through this, this, this biblical lens. You don't have to look hard to see it. Open your eyes so you'll see the brokenness that is around you whether you're watching the news or visiting with family or going to the mall. Look carefully, you'll see it on the roads. You'll find it as you're hunting for that prized parking space. You'll see the brokenness of the world. If you're a people watcher, you'll observe the raging tumult of our collective brokenness as you see how people interact with one another. The world is filled with creative and relentless brokenness. And granted, there are, there are moments throughout the Christmas holiday that are wonderfully celebratory, and yet, in the middle of all of them, there is this painful paradox. The nations rage because people rage, and the psalmist would invite us to, to see the world through this lens, to see people around us through this lens because it will help you. One, it'll allow you to be more compassionate because you'll know that behind the annoying family member or the person at work that you're struggling with or the person who just cut in front of you in the middle of the road, behind that person is the raging tumult of a world that's broken. And it'll help you see the world through eyes of compassion. But it may also help you to be comforted because if you find yourself in moments where you're understanding of what you believe and the difference between you and someone else becomes very clear or awkward, you may feel discouraged about the nature of that tension. 
Remember, this text tells us that God reigns over every element of waywardness. He reigns over every aspect of the brokenness within our culture. And so while the nations or the children or the relatives rage, this psalm says you can trust that God is in control. So see the world. Number two, this text invites us to hear his voice. Verse five says, then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So what happens here is the psalmist speaks, speaks for God. God is going to say, look, I've set my king in Zion. And this idea of Zion is not only the place in Jerusalem, but also the the, the seated reign of the coming Messiah. And as God speaks, it says his voice goes out, and as a result of his speech, people hear and are terrified. It says he will terrify them in fury, and they will be afraid. He will speak to them in his wrath. Now, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, or this is maybe the first time in a long time you've come to church, why you understand something? The Bible tells us that God is love. And most people not only understand that, that's kind of their starting point. And it's absolutely true that God is love. But you also need to know there's another side of the character of God. In the same way that every society needs to have kindness, it also needs to have justice. If it's all kindness and no justice, then the society falls apart. And as loving and as kind as God is, he's also a just and righteous God. And that means that if you're on the wrong side of him as it relates to the issue of rebellion, it turns out very badly. He speaks to them, and people are able to see who it is that they're dealing with. He speaks to them, and they understandably are afraid, and they ought to be. Because the people rebel, and yet God has established his anointed one, and while they still resist, God still affirms his plan. There is a king who's appointed by God, and attempting to thwart his plan is eternally unwise, and as a result, his words need to be heard. Do you know that God still speaks today? Hebrews chapter four tells us that God speaks through the Bible. Hebrews four says this, let us strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sword of disobedience for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The amazing thing about the Bible is that it's able to cut through all of the pretension that we put up. It's able to cut through all of the the play acting that we're involved in. Because the text goes on in Hebrews chapter four and it says, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes to him of whom, to whom we must give an account. That, what this means is this, that you may have everybody in your world fooled. Your friends, your spouse, your coworkers, even your own self you can confuse and, 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 and hide from your own understanding of who you really are. And the Bible says all of that is laid open and clear as day to God. 
One of the ways that we are warned and helped is by the way that the Bible pierces through this fog of pretension. You may be here today playing a game. Maybe you've grown up in church, you know what to say, you know all the right words. And the reality is your heart is so far away, and yet here you are, well done for coming, but the fact of the matter is, is you're here, and here's the danger for you. The more that you play that game, the more you hear and don't respond, the easier it becomes such that now you can no longer even receive the word because it lands on a hardened heart and simply bounces off, and it doesn't even move you anymore. Do you know one of the chief differences between those who are in rebellion and those who are not is in regard to whether or not they listen. Matthew 18, when describing who should be put outside of the church, who should be put under church discipline, the chief characteristic of that person is they refuse to listen. So can you just receive a a word of exhortation this morning from, from this very important psalm? We ought to be the kind of people who are ready to listen. If you're under the age of 18, if you're 18 or under, look at me right now. Stop whatever you're doing. Stop texting or playing Candy Crush or whatever it is that you're doing. Just checking the weather or your stocks, whatever you're doing. Like just 18 or under, just look at me right now. I want you to understand something. There is a difference. I've seen it over and over and over between children who listen and young people who listen and those who don't. Your parents love you. If you have someone who speaks truth into your life, they don't do that because they enjoy uncomfortable moments. Your parents aren't scheming in the bedroom. Mm, how can we make our kids really uncomfortable today? Let's, let's say things that make it feel awkward. Let's do that. Yes. Ready? Set. Make our kids awkward. Go. All right? That's, <laughs> your parents aren't doing that. You know what they are? They, they love you. They made mistakes in their life and they want to help you avoid pain in the future. And the difference between somebody who's able to be mature and wise and someone who goes off the rails invariably is whether or not they listen. Adults, you know this is true. It's not just true for kids, it's true for you. True for you as an adult. Do you listen? Do you you heed what the scriptures say? Verse 7 to 9 continues, I will tell of the decree. Now the voice shifts. Now it's the king speaking. He says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. So the word son indicates personal relationship. The word begotten indicates authority and a place of honor. Verse 8, ask of me. He was told, ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Isn't it interesting that this is the promise that's given to the Davidic king, and it's the exact temptation that Satan offers to Jesus in Matthew chapter 4, where he says to Jesus, just worship me and I'll give you all the nations. I'll, I'll fulfill God's promises to you. You know the devil knows the Bible, right? The devil knows the Bible better than you do. He loves to misquote it, misinterpret it, try and help you find a a shortcut around the promises of God. Verse 9, he says, You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel, meaning I will give you the authority to rule and reign over the nations. Now, don't be alarmed at this. 
This is the kind of, of joy and excitement that would happen when a dictator would have been overthrown and a righteous person is put in positions of power. They long for the day when this sort of rule and reign would take place. In fact, in the book of Revelation, we hear this psalm in part quoted in Revelation 19. Listen to this. Then I looked, and heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. Here comes Psalm 2. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, here it is, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty One, and on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, a name that brings joy to the heart of every Christian and the name that should also bring fear to those who are on the wrong side of God. Here's the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's his name. So listen, if you're, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, friend, what you need to wrestle with is whether or not you'll listen to what the Bible says about you. You believe something. You believe some truth, a narrative inside of your own soul. But what the Bible says about you is this, is that the biggest problem in your life is actually a broken heart, a wounded, sinful heart that goes after the wrong things every single time. What the Bible says is our desires, the very essence of what we long for, is affected by that brokenness. That's why you want to do things that you know are fundamentally wrong. That's why you look in the mirror and think, what in the world, why do I do this? The Bible has an answer. It says that we're dead in our sins, we're helpless in and of ourselves. So the question here, if you're not a believer, is will you believe what the Bible says about God's holiness and the judgment that will come? Will you believe that one day you're gonna have to stand before God and give an account? Will you listen today before it's too late? Will you believe that indeed Jesus is who he claimed to be? If you're a Christian, I want to remind you that the Bible speaks to you. In the same way that David rehearsed this decree, so too we are able to rehearse the promises of God and hear the word of God over and over Advent began with the announcing of good news, and God continues to speak through his word. But the question is whether or not we hear his voice. Some of you here today who are followers of Jesus, but if you're honest, it's been a long time since the Bible has struck you. Maybe the sermons aren't what they used to be. Maybe. Maybe the songs aren't what they used to be. Maybe. Or maybe there's a callus that's developed on your heart. A callus that maybe even right now, God by his spirit is helping you to see and understand. We're to hear his voice, we're to see the world. Here's the third thing, we are to seek his grace. Verse 10, now therefore, O kings, be wise. The psalmist here is warning these kings, warning these rulers of the earth. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Verse 11, serve the Lord with fear 
and rejoice with trembling, meaning understand who it is that you're dealing with. He wants these powerful people to realize their authority that they have is nothing in comparison to God's authority. Jesus said as much to Pilate, while standing before Pilate, who would issue his death sentence, Jesus said to him in John 19, 11, you would have no authority over me at all unless it was given to you from above. That's the paradox of power. So can I actually remind those of you who have power, maybe you have influence, you have positions of authority, Before you become intoxicated by your positions of power, can you just be reminded today that your power is nothing compared to the divine power that God has? In verse 12, here's the conclusion. Kiss the son. means to pay homage to him, to pledge fealty to him. Think of it like a scene in a movie where the king says to kiss the ring and his loyal subjects Acknowledge their devotion. It says, kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So the idea here is that because of who Jesus is, he requires and deserves obedience as king of kings and lord of lords. Taking refuge in Christ means that we place our hope for forgiveness in him. Taking refuge in Jesus means believing that his sacrifice is sufficient. It means living under his rule and reign, running to him. Taking refuge in him sounds like this. God, you are holy. I know I am not. Jesus can save me, and Christ is my life. That's what it means to take refuge in Christ. We must run to the Messiah For refuge, we must seek his grace not only because we need it, but also because of who he is. The psalmist here would help us to have us understand not just the reign of the Lord's anointed, but the importance of realizing who it is that we are dealing with. So let me give you just three applications quickly as to why this psalm matters and how this relates very specifically to where we live. So I'm taking it from the historical context and the sort of heavenly context to now trying to make this as street level and as practical as I can. Three applications. Number one, the message from this psalm is this. Resisting God always turns out badly. Resisting God always turns out badly. The Bible is filled with example after example after example of people who attempted to thwart God's plan and resist his rule. And the psalmist reminds us that always ends in disaster. Satan is cast out of heaven. Adam and Eve are banished. Pharaoh, drowned in the Red Sea. Nebuchadnezzar goes crazy. Judas regrets his betrayal. I can give you more and more and more examples. And here's the crazy thing. Some of you think you're the one who's gonna game the system. Really? You're gonna game the system with the one who's designed the system. Like you think I'm playing chess with God. You don't even know, God's already got you in checkmate. Which if you don't know chess, that's bad. All right, it means you lost. And friend, the bad news is this. You don't even know the bad news yet. Like the bad news is that hell is real and it awaits those who resist God's rule. And hell will be filled with people 
who can't believe that they didn't get away with it. Resisting God always turns out badly. Number two, resisting God involves not listening. While there are many ways that human beings rebel against God, the primary act of resistance is simply not listening to what he says. Prophets are rejected. The law is disregarded. Jesus is silenced. What happens is the word of God lands on hardened hearts. So the question that I want you to wrestle with is what is the condition of your heart today? How long has it been since the word of God landed on your heart? Isaiah warns about people who hear, but they don't understand because their hearts are dull. And I'm appealing to you to pray that God would give you a heart that would listen to him, that you'd look at the scriptures and you'd see things and be moved by what you see. And you find yourself today in a spot where your heart is hardened or callous. Why not today simply acknowledge that and say, Lord, would you help me? Help me not to resist you. And finally, resisting God ends as we take refuge in Christ. Resisting God ends as we take refuge in Christ. So the incarnation, Jesus comes, it provides the means of ending the resistance. Coming to Christ means you give up. Like, I'm all done with me. I'm all done with my ways. I'm all done with my thing. I'm all done with managing my world. Like, like I'm the problem. I give up. When you come to Christ, here's what happens. You're like, I give up on me. And when you give up on you and you turn to Christ, he fills you and makes you a new person such that you become the person you were meant to be in the first place because God solves the problem that you can't solve, namely a heart headed the wrong direction. And when that happens, everything begins to change. Taking refuge in Christ means the resisting ends. And what happens is then this victory over that resistance not only gives us hope for our future, but it also gives us hope in the present day because now the foundation of our lives has been fundamentally altered and the hope of our future is built on the solid foundation that we are a people who have run to Jesus for refuge. And when you run to Jesus for refuge, while the nations rage, you know who's in control. And while difficulties come, you know to whom you can trust. The hymn writer said it this way, How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he hath said? To you who for refuge to Jesus have fled. If you're a follower of Jesus, it means you have fled for refuge to Christ. And while the nations rage, while people rage, while families rage, while the world rages, you know one thing, my king is alive, and he's coming back, and I run for refuge in him. Oh, Lord, would you help us to be 
found today with hearts that are ready to respond to your word. Lord, for those who hear this message today who are hearing your voice, thank you that you still speak and pray, God, that even today you might bring people out of darkness into light. They might even sense your love and your favor because you're bringing this word to them in this moment. How deeply you care for us that you would do that. Lord, help us to follow you for those who are Christians, to run over and over for refuge in Christ, for trials and difficulties, for hardships and painful paradoxes of the season. We ask you, Jesus, to help us. We pray this in the name of our soon-returning King, in Jesus' name, amen.